I was thinking about my sophomore year in high school, and I wrote a paper in my English class that I was relatively proud of. And when I got the paper back, I got a good grade on it, but in big red letters, the English teacher wrote, run, the cliches are coming. And I was like, that's kind of rude for a 16-year-old's paper. Uh, but what she was saying was, you know, overall, you did the assignment, but man, was it inundated with cliches, with just overused terms and thoughts. It lacked originality. It was just stuff that, honestly, at that time, I was just regurgitating everything I was hearing, and I was pushing it out, and there wasn't a lot of originality to it. And that's really what happens when it comes to cliches. Cliches are phrases that were maybe innovative at the time that they came out, but they become cliches when they get overused and, and overdone. And especially in today's culture with this generation, uh, it's so hard to keep up with vernacular and with terms because things become cliches so fast and they don't like cliches that they quickly move on to. So by the time someone my age catches up with it, they're already three terms down the road. They're like, you still say that? I'm like, yeah, I just learned it. Like, I just figured that out. And so uh, I, I appreciate that about the next generation. I think we, though, still have a hard time as a culture continuing to regurgitate cliches, so much so that they really lose meaning, right? Things like, well, the grass is always greener on the other side. It's like, uh-huh. Uh, good things come to those who wait, which is the last thing you want to hear when you're waiting for something. You're like, no, I, I want it now. Um, or here's what I was thinking about. Uh, oh, did you wake up on the wrong side of the bed? I go, what does that even mean? There's only, my bed's against the wall. There's only one way to get out of that bed, and I don't understand what the wrong side is. Um, I, I guess I can look that up, but I really don't know what that term means. And that's the problem. Oftentimes with cliches, we use them so often and so much that we lose its meaning, and we don't even sometimes remember what it originally meant. Well, why am I saying all that? Well, there's a cliche, not just among people, but specifically among believers, that I think the world as a whole is starting to get really tired of. And the cliche is often found in social media and after some tragic events. It's this phrase, thoughts and prayers. Anybody heard that before? Thoughts and prayers? It's become just an easy way to be sympathetic, to say, man, I'm sorry for what's going on. And I think originally it had a deeper impact, a deeper meaning. But if I can be transparent with you, I think that thoughts and prayers are ineffective. Um, and not that thought and prayer in and of itself is, stay with me on this, Thoughts and prayers are ineffective when you don't actually do it. And that's really what's happened, and I think that's why people have gotten annoyed with that phrase, is it's something that we say, it's not something that we do. It's something that you just kind of throw out there as a way to be like, hey, listen, man, sorry for what you're going through, thoughts and prayers. It's like, yeah, but did you actually think and pray? Did you actually take the time to stop and process? And I think that's what makes thoughts and prayers ineffective. I believe and thoughts and prayers, right? It's what we do. Like, this is a house of prayer. This is why we ask you to come every Wednesday night. We absolutely believe in thoughts and prayers. What we don't believe in is just saying that. It's just throwing it out there. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open up to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 36 through 46. This is Jesus uh, getting close to the time where he's about to be captured, beaten, bruised, and eventually crucified, and uh, he conquers death by uh, rising from the grave three days later. But don't misunderstand. Everything that he was about to go through is horrifying. 
Okay, the, the weight of sin is on his shoulders, literally the sin of all humanity that's ever existed and ever will exist, on top of being beaten, on top of his back being ripped to shreds, on top of being humiliated in front of everybody and, and going through one of the worst executions an individual can go through. He knows and understands fully well what's about to happen. And so as this moment is drawing closer, he does what many of us need to do. He goes to pray. But what he does is he also invites his friends. He brings his disciples along so that they can pray with him. One of the last things you want to do is feel like you're praying alone. That's why we love the prayer meeting because it's an opportunity to be reminded you are not alone in this situation. We are going to come together. We're going to pray with you. We're going to believe for you. We're going to be in this process. And so Jesus, being no different, goes to this specific area where he often went to pray and he brings his disciples with him. And I want you to see what happens in verse 36 through 46. It says, then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and and became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed down his face to the ground praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, go ahead and sleep, have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. So I want you to have this picture in your mind. Here Jesus is at one of the scariest moments of his entire life. Later on, Luke tells us in his version that he was in such anguish that he literally cried tears of blood, that there was so much stress on him that the capillaries in his face broke and he's literally crying tears of blood. This is a a very, very difficult situation. And all he asked of his companions is pray with me. That's all he asked of them. He's not saying, hey, would you guys be willing to die on the cross? Would either of you be willing to take my place? He's not trying to pass this off to them. All he's saying is, I understand that I am about to go through something difficult. I've known this my whole life. I know this is what I've come to do. This is my purpose. This is why God brought me. This is why I am here. This is the whole reason for all of it. I get that. But will you pray for me? And then to go back and literally find them asleep, not once, but a couple of times to say, man, I asked you to do one thing and you couldn't even do that for me. And I think about that with all the things that people are going through in the world and how often you as believers, and you have to remember, sometimes we may be the only believer that unbeliever knows or one of the close believers to another believer and we're going through stuff and people are going through things and they reach out to you and they say, hey, will you pray for me? And our response is, absolutely, brother, I'm going to be praying for you. Yeah, absolutely. And then we never do it. And, and again, if they were to be able to come back and check on you, which nobody ever does, but if they were to come back and say, hey, remember that situation? Did you pray for me? I don't know how many of us would be honest. I don't know how many of us would be like, you know what? I'm not going to lie. I just went home and just kind of went on with my life and I never prayed for you. I hope it worked out though. Right? 
And so that's the problem. And that's why I think a lot of people start to lose faith in prayer, start to lose faith in God, because they think, well, God doesn't answer prayer. I've asked all these people to pray for me and he hasn't pulled through. And the reality is you asked them to pray. They just didn't do it. So why would God answer a prayer you never asked? So we have to be careful when this opportunity comes up, when we see a need for prayer, whether it's a personal request for prayer or even just a situation where we understand that needs prayer, right? What we've seen with with, with mass shootings over the last 10 years with what happened a few weeks ago in Uvalde and then what happened on the 4th of July in Highland Park, we, we have these situations that rise up. And as believers, if all we do is tweet, is post thoughts and prayers, but don't ever actually do it, it's no wonder unbelievers are sick of it. It's no wonder they think you're, you're full of it. Your, your thoughts, I don't want your thoughts and prayers. I want X, Y, Z. I want this to happen. Stop saying thoughts and prayers. And I get it because you don't believe in the ability of what God can do when you pray. I might understand that. But I understand that even more when the saints don't actually pray. And so listen, I'm, I'm not saying this just to you. This is to me. This is something where I have tried to discipline myself throughout my life. Whenever somebody asks for prayer, I just do it then. Like, I just try to make sure, hey, and I tell them, hey, I'll be honest with you, I'm going to forget. So let's do this right now. (laughs) There's a few things I think is important when it comes to thoughts and prayers and why they're ineffective. And if you're taking notes, the first thing is this. Thoughts and prayers are ineffective when it's only thinking about praying. Thoughts and prayers are ineffective when it's only thinking about praying. In verse 41, Jesus tells Peter, hey, listen, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Again, you know, when we say, hey, I'll pray for you, I don't think we're being disgenuine. I think the Spirit genuinely wants to pray for that individual. I think we are genuinely moved to want to pray, but the reality is the body's weak, right? We just, we forget. It's just stuff happens, things get on with our lives, we get other phone calls, we get other pressing needs, we have other situations, we have our own stuff to deal with. The body is weak, and so fleshly things start to come up, other things start to come up, and we have the right intentions, we just don't have follow-through. And we walk away instantly forgetting or being so busy that we just lose track altogether. Follow-through is so incredibly important. Right? What do they say? The road to hell is paved with good intentions? There's another cliche for you. It's like, yeah, but I meant to. I don't care what you meant to do. I care about what you actually did. Hey, you know, I, I meant to, to talk to you and call you up and tell you. I was like, sweet, you meant to. It would have been really nice if you did. I really could have used that call when that situation was going on. I really could have used you reaching out to me. I really could have used you just telling me you cared. I'm glad that you meant to do it, but I wish you would have actually done it. We can't just think about praying. We can't just think about doing things that God is asking us to do. We have to actually follow through. That's why Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 says this, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, Keep alert, meaning be on the lookout, be watching, be ready with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. What Ephesians is saying is you need to be not just willing to pray, but you need to be prepared at all times with an alertness to say, hey, let's do this right here. Hey, I'm going to pray. I'm going to intercede. Even if you don't pray in that moment, when somebody comes to you with a pressing issue, or even you might be at home and you might be reading the news and you might think to yourself, this is tragic. This is horrible. God, help us. Well, what if instead you just literally got on your knees in that moment and said, Lord, we need you. 
Father, I need your presence. Even for me right now, God, I'm so grieved. I'm so hurting. I'm so, uh, I'm starting to even at times waver in my faith because I'm wondering why you're allowing this. Lord, would you speak to me? Lord, would you come for me? Lord, would you help me so that I can be a help to others? This, this idea of, of prayer, it's not that there's a time to pray. The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing, to never stop praying. In other words, there was always a readiness to pray. It reminds me of when I was in high school, and I don't know if some of you guys, maybe some people around my age, this was your style, but in high school, uh, I don't know if kids still do it, but we always had basketball shorts under our jeans, just in case a game, just in case a game broke out. You know what I mean? So you might be at the park, like, oh, you want to hoop? It's like, sure. And you just take your jeans off, and you had basketball shorts on, and you were ready. I was ready to play, right? Like, you say, whatever. We can be hanging out. We can be hanging out at 7-Eleven. Somebody look at you, hey, you want to go play basketball? It's like, you got a ball? All right, cool. I got shorts. I am ready to do this. There was always a readiness to play. Just You never knew. Just in case the game broke out, I'm down. And at the same time, as believers, there has to be a readiness to pray. There has to be a readiness to say, I'm in. I don't need the band to build up and get me to that emotional stirring where I really want to press in and I really want to pray. I am at a constant readiness. Like, whenever the opportunity goes down, let's pray. Try instead, when you feel that urge to type thoughts and prayers, do it first and then type it. Like, again, I've tried to discipline myself in that. Before I write something, before I ever, like, especially on social media or in private messages and text messages, whenever somebody asks for prayer, before I respond, I pray. Because I feel like from an integrity standpoint, I can say with confidence, I am praying for you, or I just prayed for you, brother, and I will continue to pray for you. Right? Those are the things. Set reminders on your phones or on your fridge or on your, you know, cabinets and whatever you open up the most. Like, set reminders to say, hey, pray for this individual. Pray for the situation. I think a lot of times we, we struggle with prayer. We're like, I just don't know how to pray that long. I don't have that much to pray for. If you actually sat down and just wrote a list of prayer needs, you'll realize it's not that you don't have time to pray. It's that you don't have enough time to pray for all the things that you wrote down. You can easily pray for an hour or two every day if you just systematically wrote down the things you need to pray for. Like, just think about it. Like, let's just say in, in your prayer journal, and I'd recommend if you're somebody who needs to keep track of things, have a prayer journal. Let's just say in your prayer journal, you, let's just say you only write the names of family members. And some of y'all families, that's like 17 pages. <laughs> and every day, say, I'm gonna pray for four or five of my family members. Listen, you'll take up a half hour right there, just interceding. So there has to be a readiness, but you can't be ready if you're not in that process of regularly praying. So I think a lot of times the reason we don't pray is because we're not in the habit of praying. And because we're not in the habit of praying, we don't know how to jump into it right away. Yesterday, I was actually leaving my house to go to the office and, and work on this message specifically. And as I was leaving, my father was in the backyard and he's been kind of battling some medical stuff. And, uh, you know, we're talking, we're just kind of chit-chatting. And he says, Joey, do me a favor. Will you pray for me? I'm really worried about this, this, and that. And it just, again, the spirit of God just lit up in me and I go, I'll do it right now, Papi. And I just went and I laid hands on my father and I prayed for all the things that he had asked me to pray for and I, and I interceded and I just, I'm like, listen, I'm not gonna just say it. He needs me right now. To, he needs to hear my prayer. He needs to be encouraged by my prayer. It's not just that he's asking me for prayer. He needs the encouragement that comes from knowing that the saints are praying. And sometimes we forget that. It's not just your prayer, but it's helping them understand that you are praying with them. So thoughts and prayers are ineffective when you're only thinking about prayer. The second thing is this. Thoughts and prayers are ineffective if your prayer doesn't affect your thinking. 
If your prayer doesn't affect your thinking, then I don't think you're praying right. Three times Jesus went to prayer asking for essentially the same thing. God, if it's your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. But did you notice there was a subtle difference between the first time and the second time? Let me go back to that in Matthew 26. He says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Right? And then he goes, he confronts Peter, and then he goes back. Then Jesus left a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. Do you notice the difference? The first one is, hey, I'm asking you, because God is, a, is fully God, fully man. He understood from a humanistic standpoint what he's about to go through. And he's being genuine about how he feels and about what he's thinking. He, he's giving his uh, understanding of where he's at. And he's saying, God, if it's your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. But the second time he comes back, as he enters into prayer again, notice the subtle change. Man, if it can't happen, I want your will above all things. I wonder if it's just subtly built because the third time tells us he's just said the same thing. But at that point, the people show up and he's ready to go. There was something that was going on in that prayer closet where what he was asking for began to change. And I think that's the thing sometimes we forget. It's not always that we pray in order to change God's mind, right? It's really that as we pray, God changes our will to align with his will. And he helps us understand. Jesus, again, being both God and man, is being transparent with where he's at, with his thoughts and his prayer. But each time he walks away, he desires God's will more and more. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 through 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything, and notice this, according to his will, he hears us. We only like the part, if we ask anything, he does it. <laughs> But that's not the caveat, because again, a lot of times we, we misunderstand and we think, well, the Bible tells us that I can ask for anything in God's name, and he's just going to do it. No, no, no. It's in accordance to his will. So you might ask for something that's not in God's will, and it may be bad for you. How many times, some of us in this room, there are some relationships in our past that we are utterly grateful that God did not answer in that, right? God, would you, and then you look back, you're like, oh, thank you, Jesus, you didn't answer that prayer. Right? Because his will is greater than our will. His desire is always going to be greater than your desire. And so what happens is in that process of having that conversation, of having that prayer life, we start to shift our will into becoming closer to his will. Right? So that's why he says, in confidence that we have toward him, if we ask for anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So... When we enter our prayer closet, we walk in with some stuff. We walk in with some emotions about the thing we're praying about. We walk in with personal views on the circumstance that we're praying about. We walk in with our own genuine desires. And listen, sometimes what you're praying for is not what you should be praying for. But you don't understand that until you get in that prayer closet and God begins to shift and mold your prayer. And God begins to say, listen, I know you're praying for this, but that's not my will. That's your will. So let's shift your will a little bit. Hey, I know you're praying for this specific political policy, but you're talking about the government and I'm talking about the kingdom. Let me shift your will a little bit so that you can line up with me more specifically. Hey, I know your prayer, you think you want this, but really you're just asking that for your own selfish desires. Let me shift your will into my will so that we can actually fulfill this. See, God answers our prayers and it gives us joy because it lines up with what he initially wants for us anyway. 
But you don't get that if you're not in the prayer closet. You don't gain that understanding. Think about it. Like how often have we had misunderstandings with somebody and you sat down, you had a conversation, and at the end of it, you realize I was wrong. I'm sorry, I misunderstood. And there are so many times throughout scripture where you see people go into the presence of God one way and come out of it going, man, I was so dumb. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 73, uh, and again, I love that God gives us room, but in that psalm, the first half of the psalm, the psalmist is angry at God. He's saying, well, what's the point of living for God if unbelievers don't live for you and they get everything made and they get wealthy and they live good and here I am living for you and I'm suffering and I'm struggling. What's the point, God? And, and, and you never see in that psalm God respond, but what he says is, then I entered into your sanctuary Right? He got into the presence of God and he realizes something and he says this, I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. What a moron. Right? He just, there's this dawning as he gets into the presence of God and God begins to shift his will and begins to open his eyes and begins to show him, hey, listen, what you were saying to me, you were all wrong. You didn't get it. You didn't fully understand it. And you won't get it and you won't fully understand it until you go into that prayer closet. This is why we can't stop at thoughts and prayers and just saying it. We have to actually enter into it so that we can understand what's God's will for us to pray about. What is it that you're asking of this God? And often in our prayer, God helps us to reshape our thinking to better understand God's desire for our lives and for our situation. It's not just about saying it. It's about transformation, about transformation in the presence of God. That when you enter in, you come out different. Jesus went into that garden, scared and timid. He came out, strengthened by the angel of the Lord, as Luke tells us, and ready to receive his betrayer. Number three, thoughts and prayers are ineffective if they don't result in some form of action. Thoughts and prayers are ineffective if they don't result in some form of action. Again, one of the problems when we do thoughts and prayers is we take responsibility off of ourselves and we just throw it all on God. And we say, hey, listen, there's nothing I can do, so I'm just going to throw it on God. And I'm not saying that God is not big enough to handle it, but understand that oftentimes in that prayer closet, God gives you instructions when you walk out. After this time of prayer in the garden, Jesus was strengthened, as we talked about a moment ago, and then he acted on behalf of all of humanity. Could you imagine if after that prayer, Jesus just simply refused the cross? If he said, hey, thoughts and prayers, cool. Now I don't want to do it. There was a follow through. There was an action. There was a purpose behind that prayer because he knew that he was called to do something and he needed to be able to follow through on what God was asking him to do. Prayer is a dialogue with God. It's not a monologue. It's not just you sitting there giving God a list of things that you want and then walking away. And I think too often, we don't sit long enough to hear back from God. Could you imagine how awkward of a conversation that would be if I just went up to you and I'm like, hey, I need this, 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 and this, and that, all right, see you later. And then I walk away. And it's like, dude, can I talk? Can I, can I get a few seconds to explain? Can I, can I have a thought with you? And so I think a lot of times what we do is we limit our prayer to us just talking. Instead of just sitting in the presence of God, meditating on his word, being in alignment with what God is saying, and saying, God, would you speak to me? And then maybe waiting to hear from God. Or at least being on alert. Hey, I've prayed this prayer. Now I am actively waiting for your response. 
That might come in the message on a Sunday. That might come in your daily devotional when you read your Bible. That may come in a thought that the Holy Spirit leads you to as you're driving to work. God will respond when we genuinely seek a response. But when we're only praying to tell God what to do and not listening for what God is telling us to do, we might be missing out on half the equation. Often, when we hear back from God, it comes with instructions on the matter. James chapter two, verse 15 through 18, listen. It says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them anything that needed for their body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And again, this scripture, it's not saying that we, we have to prove ourselves by works. We have to earn our faith and works. That's not what it's saying. But what it is saying is, what good is your faith if it doesn't result in works? What good is your faith if it doesn't give you a call to action? What practical thing can you do to be obedient to the Holy Spirit and helpful to people? When you go into your prayer closet and God begins to give you instructions, what are you going to do with it? Again, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but uh, during the, the beginning of the pandemic, um, in my prayer time, I was getting frustrated with what we weren't doing in our community. We had been shut down for a while, and I, th- I felt like we were exposed and what we weren't doing, and I just, man, we should do more, we should be more, and, and I'm getting frustrated in my prayer closet. And then I knew in that time of prayer what God was asking of me, I just didn't want to do it. I'm like, no, I do youth ministry. Like, I, this is my job. I do young adults. Like, I don't need to do a bunch of other stuff. That's not my role. And God kept frustrating me and God kept pushing me because God said, no, I'm asking you to do this. And I know that's what God was asking. I just didn't want to hear it. And I think we've been there. I think we know at times that God is asking you to do a certain thing, that God is asking you to give a certain thing, but maybe you don't want to do it. I remember one time when, when we were getting ready to build our facility down the hall in our children's facility. And at that point, the church had given me the largest raise they had ever given me. Trust me, they didn't hire me at a big price to begin with, but it's because I got engaged. And so I think the board was like, eh, well, he's got a, like a family now. We should pay him like an adult. And so they gave me a pretty substantial raise. But pastor had been preaching that week about how uh, when David was getting ready to build the temple, that it was the leadership that first gave. And in my prayer time, I felt the Lord tell me, I want you to give the raise back. And I'm like, I need that, yo. Like, I'm the only one paying for this wedding. My wife was getting a master's degree at the time. Like, we didn't have any money. But again, the pressing of the Lord is, hey, I need you to act on this. I didn't want to do it. I talked to my wife or fiance at the time. And I was like, hey, here's what I think God's speaking to. She looks at me, she goes, okay. I'm like, dang, lady, you couldn't like fight me a little bit on that. We couldn't have a dialogue about this. You know, convinced me. You just got to like trust that I hear from God. What kind of woman are you? (laughs) So no, she just went with it. And then here's the even greater. I remember I talked to Natasha who runs our books and I said, hey, I feel like the Lord is telling me that I'd give this money back. So uh, going forward, that raise, would you just put it back into the building account? And she goes, okay, but we already started giving you the raise. So you want me to take money out of your check for what we already gave you? I was like, I was hoping you wouldn't notice that. But yeah, you can (laughs) give the whole raise back. (laughs) But listen, it was in my prayer time, God spoke, who am I to not act? And some of you know the story, but to to not berate the whole thing, several months later, God provided 
for me in ways that were unimaginable to the point where I actually made money on our wedding and we had the greatest honeymoon we could ever imagine fully paid for by strangers. I mean, it was a really amazing God situation. And I think back, what if I wasn't obedient to the thing that God asked of me? And again, if God never did any of that, God was still good. But you just don't fully understand what your action for God reenacts in others. And so we have to be willing. When you go into your prayer closet, when somebody asks you to pray, or even if you're praying for a situation that you see, I believe the Holy Spirit will speak. What practical things can you do? Maybe it's send a card or or a text or flowers to someone who's grieving. Maybe it's donating to a cause that's making a positive impact in that situation, like Convoy of Hope, who does natural disaster reliefs all over the country. Maybe it's volunteering your own time to say, hey, I want to be helpful in this. I want to give my time. I want to see what I can do to be a part of this solution. But listen, the church of God must move when the voice of God tells us to. And again, I think a lot of times the reason we're not, not in the way that God wants us to, is because we limit thoughts and prayers to a cliche rather than a call to action. To say, God, speak to me and tell me what I'm supposed to do in this situation. And again, I, don't get me wrong, there are some situations that seem so insurmountable, like, like with some of those mass shootings, like, well, what can you do? Well, what's the process? Well, again, I don't have the answer for you, but I think God does. And whatever it is, you might see it as small, but you add up all those small things. Listen, a thousand pounds of cotton and a thousand pounds of steel are the same amount, all right? Same amount of weight. You might have a lot more cotton in that room, but it's the same amount of impact. And so all these little things that we do by the voice of the Holy Spirit, they will add up to the impact that God is trying to make. But when you refuse to do your little thing and you refuse to do your little thing and everybody refuses to do their little thing, no big things ever happen. Does that make sense? Worship team, if you can help me out. Now you may ask, well, what's the harm in just saying thoughts and prayers? It's just like saying my condolences or I'm sorry this is happening. The problem is that our mind should always be on prayer because it not only affects our outcome, it affects us. Let's go back to Matthew 26, a little bit later on, verse 50 to 54. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do, the betrayer. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Now the gospel of John tells us that the individual who pulled out his sword was obviously Peter because Peter was just that kind of guy. Peter often ran ahead of the Lord. Now here's the crazy thing. Peter was in the same garden that Jesus was with the same opportunity to pray except Jesus or Peter fell asleep. He thought about praying with Jesus when Jesus asked him. I'm sure he did. But Peter's mentality remained in the flesh because he hadn't spent time in the spirit. 
So when this situation arises, not one that's going to catch them off guard, over and over and over again, Jesus is telling them, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be captured. This is to fulfill scripture. It's going to happen. See, he's here. He's on his way. This is all planned. I'm giving my life. No one's taking it. I get. They had been prepped and planned for all of this, but they hadn't spent time in the spirit. They hadn't spent time in prayer. And so when that moment arose, their spirit didn't rise up, their flesh did. Peter didn't act spiritually, he acted carnally. He pulled out his sword and he thought, I must defend God. And listen, that happens now on social media especially. Where we get on these rants attacking unbelievers, attacking other believers. I have to defend God. You don't think God can call on heaven and 12 legions of angels can't come and take care of business? You think God needs you to defend him like that? By berating and hurting and cutting the ears off other people? By cutting them down, by ridiculing them, by mocking them, by laughing at them? You think that's what the people of God were called to do? And it's making our job so hard to reach unbelievers. There is such a disdain for us now because what they've heard is not your thoughts and prayers, but your anger and frustration. So they don't want anything to do with your God. (laughs) We don't need you to pull your sword out and cut somebody's ear off. We need you to go in the garden and pray. We need you to be led by the Spirit. We need you to do what only the Spirit asks you to do when the Spirit asks you to do it. So when are thoughts and prayers effective? When it's offered in earnest faith. James chapter 5, verse 16 through 18 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. That's what you need to be. Not the prayers of a powerful person, not the prayers of an influential person, not the prayers of a wealthy person, not the prayers of a person with the high platform. A person who is in right standing with God. The prayers of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Listen, Elijah was a human being just like you and I. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. I love what James is saying here. That the same spirit that moved through Elijah is I would argue even more active in you today. So why can't we see God heal our land? Why can't we see God heal the sick, bring unity to the body, restore marriages, bring back wayward loved ones, provide for financial needs. Why not? Why do we have to reduce the presence of God to a tweet that says thoughts and prayers when we can actually go boldly before the throne of grace and not just think about praying, but actually do it? This morning, I'm asking you to do more than just say thoughts and prayers but to actually be the intercessors that God has called us to be.